So what's up, Revolution? Right on. So before we get started tonight, we're going to be in the book of James. But before we do that, I'm going to need your guys' help. This is going to sound kind of weird. I need all people of only pure European white ancestry in the first few rows and anyone with any kind of mixed ancestry. I need you to sit in the back. All minorities go to the back of the room. No? All right. Um, Everyone who makes $50,000 a year or more, I need you to sit in the first couple of rows. And if you make 20 grand a year or less, I need you to go to the back of the room. No? Um, Okay, if you were uh, completely sexually pure, complete virgin um, until the day you got married, I need you to sit in the first few rows, and any rest of you who have been adulterers of some form, I need you to go to the back. No? Um, If you've never been drunk or you've never used any kind of illegal drug, I need you to sit in the first few rows. And if you've been drunk or used drugs, I need you in the back of the room. No. No one's getting up. No one at all. And why? Right? Like, that doesn't initially seem like the right thing, right? Like, you're probably thinking, like, what kind of bigoted, racist, like, what kind of pastor do they have here at Revolution? Like, what kind of person do they got? Um, well, I'm, I'm discriminating, right? I'm trying to make a point. Um, I'm discriminating. I'm trying to segregate people based off of what they've done or who they are or what they look like or how much money they make. And that should disgust you. That should disgust you on some level that I would discriminate, especially in the context of a church. Especially in the context of me saying I'm a Christian. And wanting to discriminate against people for whatever reason, that should disgust you. And why is that? Because the Bible teaches us that Christianity is all about equality. right? That we may have different skill sets, we may have different things that some of us are better than other people at certain things, but we all have inherent worth. Because we've all been made in the image and likeness of God. That's what Christianity teaches. Christianity was actually the, the first and only religion for a long time that promoted equality in sexes that promoted equality among races because the Bible says that in Christ there is no male, female, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no Greek, there is no Jew, that there's no races, that there's no anything dividing us. There's just believers and non-believers now. But even knowing that, even knowing that that's what the Bible teaches, that there's still discrimination within the church. And James actually writes about this. He, he wrote this book. It was relevant in like the 40s AD. And here we are like 2,000, 2000 years later. And it's still just as relevant to us today as it was then. We're, we're going to be in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 this evening. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you can take one of those blue Bibles. Or if you're lazy like I am, it's going to be up here on the screen behind me, I do believe. And also, those Bibles are our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible um, that's easy to read, like there's a lot of vowels and these in it that you don't understand, take that with you. That's our gift to you. But we're going to see where James talks about discrimination and how unacceptable it is and incompatible that it is with Christianity and with saying that you're a Christian, saying that you follow Jesus. But we're going to break these verses down. Let's, let's see what James has to say. Uh, verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters... How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? So right off the bat, James is saying it's it's inconsistent to say that you have faith in Jesus and still show favoritism, that you're still partial to some people over others. He says that right out of the gates. Verse 2, for example, 
Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Right? So he's saying it's inconsistent for us to discriminate and call ourselves followers of Jesus. And then he gives an example. He says a rich man comes into the church and people fawn over him. Right? People are saying, come sit with me. I want to get to know you. So what that looks like for us, because we so much don't discriminate between rich and poor. At least we try not to, right, on the surface level. What that looks like for us in our context is someone walks in that looks like they have their life together pretty well. So someone walks in that looks like us, that's about our age. Someone walks in that that looks like they have their life together, that looks like they have similar interests, that looks like we could have mutual benefit from a friendship with them. And we gravitate towards that person. And we want to introduce ourselves. We want them to sit with us and we want to be their friend. We want to invite them out to eat with us after church. We want to invite them into our home. But then a person comes in after them that looks a little bit rough. That looks dirty. James actually paints a portrait of a homeless person. Someone that you know, looks messy, like their life isn't all together. That they're probably uneducated. They, they might not share some things in common with us. That this relationship might cost us something without any return from them because they don't have much to offer. And we fawn over the one that looks like they have something to offer us and we neglect the other one because they look different than we do. For whatever reason that difference is. And James says, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Now that discrimination, that word in Greek actually means, it can mean wavering or doubtful. So it says, doesn't this wavering show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? It's the same idea that James has in chapter 1 whenever he calls people double-minded. Doesn't this wavering about God's impartiality and the world's discrimination doesn't the fact that your mind is not completely set on God being impartial and you being impartial as a result, doesn't that show that your motives are evil? Because you're splitting yourself between doing what the world would do and doing what Jesus would tell you to do. The, the church is to be a place of no distinctions or we're no better than the world. It's an evil motive. Verse 5, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Right, so he says, we can see all throughout, the, all throughout the Old Testament, right? These people were Jewish. They were very familiar with the Old Testament. They were familiar with Jesus' teaching. They were Christians. He says, is it not abundantly clear throughout all the scripture that we have that God especially delights in saving the poor? That God especially delights and has a special place in his heart for the people that the world calls worthless and that are painfully aware of their own inadequacy. Is that not abundantly clear in scripture? And yet you dishonor those exact same people that the world calls worthless and then they come in among you where you see these people out on the street and you treat them exactly like the world does. That they're not worth your time. That their lives are too messy for you to be involved with them. So that doesn't make sense. And that's not saying to discriminate against the rich. It's not a sin to make a lot of money. It's a sin to want to keep a lot of money. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But something to consider is the, the gospel is open to everyone. But whenever Jesus preached, it was the poor 
who were swept into the kingdom because the gospel offered them everything and demanded everything from the rich. God has a special place in his heart for the people that the world calls worthless. Verse 8. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying, look, if you're, if you're, being, if you're being favor, like if you're showing like some kind of favoritism, or not favoritism, but if you're showing love to this, to this man who seems like he has his life together, who has money, who, who is like you, who is educated, whatever. If you're showing love to that person because you know that the Bible says to love your neighbor, right? Because the royal law is love God, love your neighbor. If you're doing that because of that law, then that's great. That's great. You're doing exactly what God tells you to do. But if you're favoring some people over others, you are committing a sin. So if you're favoring this person over and above and at the expense of the poor person who walked in behind them, you commit a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not commit murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So in verse 10 through 12, James actually introduces this concept that, you know, God is one and his word is one. So his law is one. So you can be completely obedient in all aspects of the law. And if you mess up at one part, you're guilty of breaking it all. To violate God's law in one spot makes you lumped in with lawbreakers, a criminal. You've committed a crime against God. Just like if I get convicted for grand theft auto, I'm a felon. I may not have committed murder or rape, but I'm still going to be lumped in with a felon because God's law is one structure. So what James is saying is you can pray, you can read scripture, you can worship, you can give your money away, you could be abstinent, you can be not given over to drunkenness, you can do all kinds of ministry, and yet if you show favoritism, it was all for nothing because you're a lawbreaker and you're guilty of a crime against God. So we're called to be just as enthusiastic in light of this, that favoritism is is breaking God's law. We're called to be just as enthusiastic and loving with the poor, unfashionable, weird, unattractive, uneducated people that we see on a daily basis just as much as we are with their counterparts. That we're called to to be a counterculture, to go to the people that the world calls completely worthless and say, you are worth something to me because I am worthless and Jesus counted me as worth saving. 12 and 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So remember, you're going to be judged by how you love your neighbor. That's the law that sets you free. That's what you're going to be judged by. Loving God, love your neighbor. Loving God and obeying his commands always results in us loving our neighbor. You cannot divorce the two. Jesus says we're going to be judged by how we love the outcast in our society. He says, whatever you do to the least of these among you, my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. It's because loving these social outcasts, these people that the world has rejected as worthless, is evidence of our faith. Love creates love, creates love, and mercy creates mercy, creates more mercy. So if we've received God's love and grace and compassion and mercy, it should just flow out of us into the people that we come into contact to. And if it doesn't, then we prove that we have not received God's mercy and we are still condemned for our sin. That we've not actually placed our faith in Jesus or we would show that kind of mercy to people. So we add all this up and what do we get? 
we should show no favoritism. I've said it like 150 times. It's probably getting annoying. Um, we shouldn't discriminate. Now, whenever we think of discrimination as Americans, generally we think of racism. And that is com- completely right on. That's, that's a form of discrimination, but that's not where we're going to camp on this one. Um, and if you're curious as to why racism is wrong, that's kind of funny. Um, racism, races don't exist now. Like I told you at the very beginning of the sermon, in the, in the New Testament it says there is no more race, that Jesus came to save men and women of every tribe, tongue, nation, culture, ethnicity, background, whatever, that he came to save all groups of people. So that's one of the reasons why racism is wrong. So in light of that, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, heaven's going to be hell on a racist. Anyone? I think that's hilarious. Um, but yeah, so, and, and just furthermore, the early church was full of what the United States would call minorities. Like, you guys ever heard of St. Augustine? One of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. Black is coal. Black. Um, I think John Chrysostom, if you guys are familiar with these, I'm probably getting a little bit too nerdy for you guys. Just some of the greatest preachers ever and greatest Christian thinkers in the early church were what we would call minorities. So it just doesn't make any sense if our history as Christians is just all over the place with different racial groups. Racism has no place in Christianity. But that's not where we're going to camp today. I felt like I should say that because we're from the hotbed of racism that is Southern Ohio. Um, I can't go to work without hearing like 10 different racial slurs out in Manford. Um, (laughs) But what we don't usually think of Whenever we think of discrimination, we think of racism, we think of sexism, things like that, but we don't usually think of discrimination against drug addicts. We don't think of discrimination against welfare recipients, and we don't think of discrimination against promiscuous women or prostitutes, whatever. We're going to put both of them in the same category for this evening. We don't think of that. And if if you don't believe me, if you think that I'm maybe going a little bit overboard on that, I, I would argue that those are the three most discriminated groups in our Southern Ohio context. And if you don't believe me, answer these questions in your head. Uh, you see, you're at the store or the convenience store, or whatever, and you see someone. Their eyes are glazed over. They're strung out. They may have track marks. They may have like meth sores on their face. Whatever. They they can't stand still or they're falling over. Do you get annoyed? Do you think to yourself, "What a waste of life! What a piece of junk!" Is that what you think? You see someone, you're at Walmart, and you see someone pull out an EBT card. That's a food stamp card, if you guys aren't familiar. Um, You see someone pull out an EBT card. Do you get irritated? Do you immediately think, you don't need that? You have a phone in your hand. You don't need that. You have a car that you drove here in. You don't need all that stuff in your cart. Do you get irritated? Or you go through the East End, and you see a prostitute. Or, this one might hit a little bit closer to home, you see someone from your community or group of people that you know, that you know is a promiscuous woman or man for that matter, um, and you immediately think that that person's worthless, that they're disgusting, that you want them away from you, you lump them into this category of whore, and that they're not worth your time, that, that, that they're not worth any kind of affection or, or any of that. Is, is that what goes through your head? Because I don't know about you guys, but I'm guilty of thinking those kinds of things. I'll be completely honest with you. I'm guilty of thinking that stuff. And what happens is these people are viewed as less than human beings. We we view them as just bad people. We view them as selfish, as bad parents, as a burden on society. Right? System suckers. I hear that one a lot. Um, Whores. 
worthless, that they're better off dead. That's how we generally think about these people. Maybe that's not you, but I'm speaking as, as a whole. That's how society views them, and I, and I, would, I would dare to venture that that's how a lot of people within the church view these people as well. We dismiss these three groups of people. We don't want to engage them because it's messy, because we feel like we're better than them. We don't want to engage them. We don't want to take time out of our day to get to know these people because we think that they are so much lower than us because of what they've done or what they're doing. We, we take away their humanity and turn them into a group or we turn them into an idea. And what I mean by that is we see someone who's on drugs and we don't think, what we automatically think a lot of the times is, there goes another druggie that would be better off dead, that's not taking care of their kids, that's costing the United States money. They'd be better off to die and get out of here. But what we don't think is, that's Karen. And Karen has parents, and Karen has siblings. And Karen was molested whenever she was eight years old, and no one believed her. And for the next four years, she was raped by her uncle. And then she found Oxycontin. And Oxycontin made her not feel, made her not have to think. And that's why she does what she does. And I'm not excusing away drug addiction or anything like that. But we don't ask that question. We don't look, we look at a woman and we say that she's a slut and that she makes us sick and that she's ruining families and she's too worried about getting another man and she is taking care of her kids. But we don't realize is this woman, Danielle, has parents and that this woman, Danielle, is her, her dad didn't love her the way a father should. He didn't tell her that she was worth more than this. She never had approval from her father. So now she spent her whole life looking for approval from a man, and our culture tells women that if you want approval, if you want a man to love you, you have to sexually please them. And that's why she does what she does. We take away their humanity and lump them into a group and get angry with them and think that we're better than them. When in reality, when we look at them, our heart should break for them. Our heart should completely break for them. Whenever Jesus looked out on crowds of sinners and sick people, it said that Jesus didn't get angry. He said he had compassion on them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we don't do that. We strip them of their humanity. We should be heartbroken at the fact that this is what a life looks like whenever the depravity of sin gets a hold of somebody. This is what a life looks like apart from Jesus Christ. And that's not how it should be. That's not what God intended for humanity. So, sure, we should be provoked whenever we see that. But we shouldn't be provoked to anger. We should be provoked to compassion because that's what Jesus was provoked to whenever he saw these people. That's what Paul was provoked to in Acts whenever he saw this kind of stuff. Our spirit should be provoked to love and action. We should begin asking the questions whenever we see these people. How did you get here? What can I do to alleviate this? What can I do to help? What can I do to get involved? Where can I donate money? Where can I get involved to volunteer to help alleviate this kind of stuff? Can I be your friend? Can I get to know you? That's what we should be asking ourselves. But we don't take time to do that. I'll, I'll throw this one at you. Discrimination happens whenever we define a person by what that they have done or what they're doing instead of defining that person as someone in need of the grace of God. Then discrimination happens whenever we view ourselves as above somebody because we're quick to forget whenever we discriminate or look down on a group of people 
Like I said, we're quick to forget that they're in need of the grace of God. We're quick to forget that we're in need of that exact same grace. Favoritism is breaking the law. So if you discriminate against this person, you are in the same category that they are in as a criminal that has committed a crime against God. You are no better. There are two groups of people in the universe. There's Jesus Christ who is sinless, has never committed a crime, and there is everyone else. So how could we have the gall to look down on somebody ever for anything? So this kind of discrimination creeps into the church. It might might be subconscious, but it's sin regardless. And it's crept into revolution. Uh, I've seen it, and we're going to talk about it. Um, We click up really bad here at Revolution. And what I mean is we have five or ten people that we want to hang out with, five or ten people that we want to talk to, and we don't look outside of that. Someone new can come in. You might throw your hand up, wave at them, but you're not going out to talk to them because maybe they're older than you. Maybe they're younger than you. Maybe they don't look as educated as you. Maybe they look like that their life might be in a mess. Even people that are similar in in, in looks and similar in backgrounds as you, you're still not apt to go invite them into into your group, invite them into your home, invite them out with you and your friends. We, We click up like it's high school or something. And we don't want to look outside of ourselves to expand. The Bible says that we're all adopted sons and daughters of God, so we should act like a family whenever strangers come in. I've seen, I've seen too many times strangers come into this church more than one week in a row and sit in the back with no one ever saying a word to them. I've seen it a lot. And then they don't come back because they realize that no one here, evidently no one here cares about them. No one wants to talk to them. No one wants to say, hey, we don't count you as worthless around here. We want you to come hang out with us. We want to buy your dinner. We want you to come be friends with us. We want to invite you into our home. We don't, we've done an awful job at that. And we have to stop, period. Even if it's subconscious, it doesn't change the fact that it's sin, because that's favoritism. That's favoring your friends over someone that's new here. So I'm telling you to be intentional. If you see someone, whether it's here or whether it's out on the street, whatever, you see someone that you don't know, try to make friends with them. Introduce yourself. Invite them with you. Go out on a limb. It might be awkward, but who cares? Plug people in. Make time for strangers. Because if you don't, you can pray and you can sing and you can study scripture and you can give your money and you can be sexually pure and you can preach and you can lead small groups and you can lead worship and all that. But at the end of the day, if your heart discriminates and you're not willing to go after people, you're guilty of breaking the law and it's all for nothing. Period. It's inconsistent with Christianity. It's inconsistent with the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible does not discriminate based on social standing or appearance or based on the fact that you're a stranger. The Bible teaches that God judges based on your heart. And that sounds like there should be some relief there. But there's not. God judges based on your heart and your heart is black and wicked. You'd actually probably be better off if God judged you based on your social standing. You'd be better off if God judged you based off your race. 
but God judges you based on your heart. And like I said, even though that might sound comforting, our hearts are black because we're sinners. Our hearts are black. They're covered in rebellion and sin. So if you've not listened to a word I've had to say this evening, listen now. God judges your heart and you are wicked. There is not one good person in this room, myself included. You're a sinner and so am I. Sin is rebellion against God. God has told us to live this way, to not do these things, to do these other things, and to worship him with every fiber of our being. And instead, we've given him the finger, spit in his face, said, I'm going to do things the way that I want to do things. I'm going to be my own God, and I'm going to live as if you don't exist. And in doing that, we commit a crime against God. We've broken his law. And God is a God, he's the very embodiment of justice. So God's justice declares that we have to pay a penalty for our crime. We've committed the most heinous crime in the universe, sinning against an eternally loving, selfless, good, holy God. Now we deserve the most awful eternal punishment, and that is hell. Our black hearts show that we deserve hell. Because that's justice. But God's also the embodiment of of mercy. So here's where the news starts to get a little bit better. You have a black heart, but God wants to show you mercy. But how is he going to do that whenever justice requires that someone pay the penalty for sin? Well, in God's mercy, he sends Jesus Christ to earth. And Jesus is the only man to ever be born and live a life with a pure heart. He never sins, ever. He always does the will of God. He worships God with everything that he has. He's completely obedient in every way that we are not. He didn't discriminate against anybody. He didn't look down on anybody. He had compassion on people, grace. He showed mercy where we don't. And then after living a sinless life, he, because he's God, he takes our sin on himself. All the times that we fall short, all the times that we don't listen to God, all the times that we discriminate and show partiality and favoritism. He takes all that sin on himself and goes to the cross and says, God, you say that in justice, someone must pay for this sin, but in mercy, you don't want humanity to pay for it. So I'm here to pay for it. I've taken their sin, punish me for what they've done. And on the cross, God pours all of his wrath out for sin on Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just physically die on the cross. That wouldn't have been enough. Jesus literally suffers the penalty of hell on the cross. But that's not the end either. The news keeps getting better. Three days later, Jesus came back from the dead. And that was proof that Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. That Jesus' sacrifice paid the penalty for sin. And now God says that if we come to faith in Jesus, if we put all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith in the fact that Jesus did what we could not do, that Jesus had a pure heart and Jesus took our sin on himself, died for our sin and was resurrected. If we put our faith in that for our salvation, we'll be saved. If we believe that, we'll be saved. So there's a response now. There's a response to this. I say this every week. Either you can accept this good news that Jesus has paid for everything that you've ever done and you'll be saved because Jesus will stand in between you and God whenever judgment comes and say, I paid for everything that he did. I gave him my pure, perfect heart in, re- in, in, in return for his black one. Or you can stand between God because you've rejected this gospel with no one in between you and God and you will pay the punishment for your sin. 
Make no mistake, someone will pay for what you've done. Either you will or Jesus will. There is no third option. And if you say that you believe this message, you will begin to follow Jesus. Because the Bible says that faith without action is dead. If you say that you believe this message and your life is not one trying to be more like Jesus, you're a liar. You don't believe the gospel. You don't believe Jesus did this for you, period. So if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus or or more about what it means to have Jesus pay this debt for you, you can come talk to me after the service or you can talk to Brady and Megan over here by the by the couch while we're doing worship. If you feel like this message makes sense, if something's drawing you to want to know more, then come find one of us and we'll pray with you, we'll talk with you. But there has to be a response. Having no response is a response. But Christians, we know that God still doesn't discriminate. Even after Jesus does this, that he still loves us indiscriminately. That the gospel says that no matter where you're from, that no matter what background that you have, that whether you're rich, poor, black, white, addicted, sober, educated, uneducated, male, female, whatever that you are, that this is open to you. No matter who you are or what you've done, that this message is available to you. This salvation is available for you, regardless of your past. So, Christians, knowing that and knowing that we've accepted this salvation that God has indiscriminately handed out to us, how can we show partiality to people? How can we discriminate against other people if God didn't? How can we look down at someone for making mistakes and and choosing to do wrong whenever, in spite of me, when I was still a sinner? It says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us in spite of us. So how could we look down on other people for doing exactly what we were doing? So knowing how wicked and spiritually poor that we are, how can we not want to befriend the outcasts or the newcomer, the people that are making a mess out of their lives? It's just inconsistent unless we haven't truly come to faith. And that's what James is saying at the end of this passage. If that's your attitude towards people, then it shows that you have not truly come to faith in Jesus. So if that's you, Christian, repent. Period. Turn from how you've been discriminating against people and begin to live a life loving everyone without partiality. Understanding your place as a sinner, go and show love to people. That's gratitude. That's what we're all about. Everything we do is out of gratitude. So we love others without partiality because that's how God loved us first. Period. Everything that we do is because Jesus has done it first. And he says to imitate him. So if you love Jesus, go do these things. Get involved. Stop looking down at people. Invite the stranger. Befriend the stranger. Even if you think that you're going to have nothing in common with them. What did you have in common with God? You were sinning. You were a sinner. You had nothing in common with a holy God, and yet he loved you anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that we are sinners and you've, you've chosen to love us anyways in spite of ourselves. Thank you for the, the gospel, the fact that Jesus died in our place for our sin. And we didn't deserve that. We didn't deserve your love. We didn't deserve your special favor, but you gave it to us anyway. You gave it to anyone who will believe, whoever will believe the gospel will be saved, God. And I thank you for that, that you're not a God who 
discriminates. God, I pray that you help us to, to know that and in light of the gospel, go out and, and love people. Just love everyone that we come into contact with. God, let us do that as a form of worship, God, because you are worthy of worship. For everything that you've done for us and everything that you're going to do, God, we just thank you. And, and let us live this week and the rest of our lives, for that matter, in light of the fact that you just love, despite all the dumb things that we do and in spite of all the mess that we make of our lives, that you love us and let us go and, and love people that exact same way. God, above everything, just thank you for saving us in spite of ourselves. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.